Welcome to the Cell Intel podcast, where we explore how single cell and spatial analysis methods are being adopted and are accelerating discoveries in life science research. Hello, and welcome to the Cell Intel podcast. Today, we're talking with Tony Sillo, postdoctoral associate in the Vignali Lab at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Immunology and Hillman Cancer Center, and Bob Lafayettes, professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh in the Division of Rheumatology and Clinical Immunology. Really happy to have you guys on today. Thank you for joining. Happy to be Thanks here. Great. So I'm going to start with a question for Bob. I hear that you've received one of the first 10x controllers in the country. How did you implement this technology so rapidly, and what expertise did you leverage to get going? Well, yeah, it was kind of a forced accident. We were uh, considering other instruments, actually, at the time. We were were able to get the 10x and uh, was directed to this by one of the other investigators at Pitt and uh, reinforced by some investigators so we were pleased when it arrived and i it was still working in the lab some at that point and thought that my technical staff would need assistance to get things going and we didn't expect experiments to run for a while because at that point there wasn't all of the published data that there is now so we weren't aware of any of that and it was really a very pleasant surprise the first two skin samples we ran the, uh, the one that I ran didn't, didn't really work very well, but the one that my technician ran worked perfectly. So I, I at that point, that was my last experiment. <laughs> I then stepped out and it's clear that uh, it was you know, r- relatively straightforward. We were doing something a little different than maybe at that point had been originally planned, which was to do tissue digestions. I think originally a lot of the experiments that had been anticipated were more in vitro kind of things. So we, we got to kind of get in early on that. Yeah, definitely working with tissue dissociation presents its own individual complexities. So it's great that you're able to support researchers in that realm. Um, could we also talk about a little bit, um, what are some of your favorite discoveries that were enabled by 10X Technologies? Well, one of the mysteries in skin, as well as many connective tissues, has been the role of fibroblasts. And fibroblast biology has really been you know, one of the earliest cells that were cultured in vitro, but very little was known about heterogeneity of fibroblasts because there were really no good markers for the different fibroblast populations. So we were really pleased to, we, we digested all the skin and looked at all the cell populations, and we could very quickly and easily see cell populations that had not been previously identified. So this is just looking at normal skin. Yeah, so we saw somewhere on the order of uh, depending on how you count them, seven to nine populations, only a couple of which had really been previously described. Wonderful. So definitely advancing our understanding of underlying human biology there by characterizing new subpopulations. What about you, Tony? Any uh, favorite discoveries or favorite projects? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think some of the projects that we initially started um, you know, looking into with uh, the 10X technology turned out to be some of the most interesting ones. Uh, specifically, we we started looking in head and neck cancer, and we were, you know, as an immuno oncology lab, 
specifically interested in head and neck cancer because it's kind of unique in that it can be caused by either exposure to environmental carcinogens or by infection with high-risk HPV. So kind of the top-down question we wanted to ask was, you know, how the immune response in the tumor microenvironment differs between these two types of head and neck cancer. And I think some of the most interesting stuff that's come out of that is really two stories. Uh, One story in which we, you know, did a full top-down approach and looked at all the different immune cell subsets and kind of asked which were most similar and which were most different between uh, head and neck cancer caused by HPV versus that caused by, uh, you know, alcohol and tobacco. And uh, we found a really interesting uh, story where B cells and uh, CD4 helper cells were quite different between these two tumor microenvironments. And the 10X technology allowed us to characterize uh, both of those subpopulations a little better. The first of which was the T follicular helper cell population, which we found was associated with viral specific head and neck cancer. And uh, a high number of those cells uh, had patients doing better. The B cell story was really interesting uh, because it actually led us to um, characterize different uh, transcriptional signatures, but also uh, the structural patterns associated with those transcriptional signatures for B cells. And we found uh, tertiary lymphoid structures, both transcriptionally and by imaging, uh, in the tumor microenvironment of patients with HPV positive disease. So, you know, to the next technology for those two stories really let us go from. Uh, sort of a top-down, didn't really know what we were looking for uh, approach all the way to specific pathways and subpopulations. So it was really exciting to, to see what we could do with that. Great. So the five-prime single-cell immune profiling technology allows researchers to assess T-cell receptors and B-cell receptors on the single-cell level, look for clonotype frequencies and relative changes in those populations. Tony, were you also looking at TCRs and BCRs? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so initially, this project actually started out uh, using the three prime technology because the five prime technology didn't exist yet. Um, but we're we're certainly interested in uh, extending these findings, um, specifically in the context of the the viral uh, the viral HPV caused head and neck cancer. Really want to try to see if there's T cell clones or uh, B cell uh, receptors that are specific for uh, the virus. Um, there's been some work suggesting that they might be, but uh, I think we can start to really start to get uh, down to the nitty-gritty with that question with the technology now. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, Bob, what are some of the different sample types you see coming through the core? I know that you previously mentioned skin. Uh, it sounds like there's some really interesting projects around cancer as well. Are there other sample types you've worked with? Yeah, as a core, our samples that are submitted have changed a lot over time, and they've ranged Quite, quite a variety. So early on, we were working with a lot of the people at Pitt that were interested in cancer, and they've now gone off and purchased their own devices so that now we work more typically with smaller labs and investigators. So we've worked with groups that have uh, been interested in dental and gum disease. We've worked with groups that are interested in liver disease, uh, kidney disease. We've worked across both mice and humans. And yeah, those, and, and then we've done a lot of our own lung as well as uh, work with others in the center who are interested in lung disease. So lung, lungs are probably the, the the leading organ that we look at now. I'm trying to think what other organs, but those those are the main those are the main ones we've been focused on, not not just ourselves, but but the investigators who come to us. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit more about these projects looking into lung and what you might have used this technology to investigate there? So the 
the, the we've typically not purified cell populations, and typically I in many cases or most cases recommend at least in initial experiments that people try to be inclusive about the populations because the 10x technology, as you know, allows you to look at so many cells at one time that you can see most of the rare populations if you run you know 4,000 or 10, even 10,000 cells in a at a time so that uh, we we've in the lung seen quite a variety of different cell populations and the question then is has been always the challenge early on is what what to focus on in the lungs my group has been particularly interested in the macrophage populations and one of the interesting observations I, I thought particularly interesting observations we were able to make early on based on the transcriptome analysis was that there's a uh, well, actually, several populations of macrophages that are proliferating in normal lungs, but that when one looks in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or scleroderma interstitial lung disease, that you see a uh, marked increase in their proliferation. And those cells stand out very nicely in TISNI, in TISNI or UMAP plots. And they are, we, we actually went, went ahead and documented their proliferative status in, in vitro, uh, actually by taking the tissue out, but, but the transcriptome signatures are really robust. And I think leads to one of the more useful tool or approaches to analyzing the data, which is to look for mark, marker genes of, of a process. And proliferation is one process, but one can use any, any, of a, uh, any process one's interested in and, and uh, using at least the Surratt software, which is, I think, now still the most commonly used software nationwide coming out of the New York uh, Center. Uh, can can look at any any accumulation of genes and, and feed them into the process and see where those genes are are being expressed as a group. Any work around therapeutics and immuno oncology as well? Yeah, there's uh, definitely some exciting stuff going on, uh, you know, in our group specifically, but also at the University of Pittsburgh in general, leveraging this technology. Uh, specifically, uh, we're looking at, you know, different. Uh, patient populations that have been treated in a, a neoadjuvant setting. So you, uh, you give an immunotherapy prior to tumor resection. And we're, we're looking at both peripheral blood and tumor biopsies from these neoadjuvant treated patients uh, to really try to assess at the single cell level first, you know, what are the pharmacodynamics of the response after therapy? And uh, also, are there predictors of patients that will or will not respond to therapy? So you know, amino oncology is, uh, you know, a very exciting field and has had a lot of success uh, in the past couple of years, but still uh, many patients don't respond to current therapy. So identifying those that will benefit is, is a, would be hugely beneficial. So uh, yeah, there's a number of um, exciting projects going on in that space. It's time for Little Gems. In keeping with the theme of today's episode, we want to tell you about our single cell analysis system. If you're already familiar, you will still want to listen because we have some news. You may have heard that our chromium system enables single cell gene expression analysis by encapsulating individual cells of your sample along with a uniquely barcoded bead in tiny reaction vessels or partitions created by an oil emulsion. Each one of these little gems, or gel beads in emulsion, undergoes reverse transcription of the cell's transcriptome and generation of a next-gen DNA sequencing library using 10X genomics reagents. 
After sequencing, the data is analyzed with the help of various software tools. To hear more discussion about the power of the available software tools that are out there for single cell analysis, listen to Cell Intel episode number two, How the Data Gets Crunched. Now we are entering a new phase of single cell research in which the questions are becoming more complex and the demand for increased cell and sample throughput continues to grow. The newest member of our chromium instrument family, Chromium X, puts these high throughput experiments within reach. Chromium X makes single cell analysis easy, reliable, and scalable thanks to our proven NextGem technology. You can run any 10x genomic single cell assay at the scale you need with the industry's highest throughput flexibility for analysis of hundreds to hundreds of thousands of cells, making million cell studies routine. To learn more about the Chromium X series, go to 10xgenomics.com forward slash gem6, that's G-E-M-6. We also want to remind you that you have a chance to provide us with some input on the podcast, and those located in the U.S. have a chance to win a 10X Genomics water bottle. Just go to our webpage at 10xgenomics.com forward slash little dash gems and answer the question, what would you like to hear on a future episode of Cell Intel? That's 10xgenomics forward slash little dash G-E-M-S. The drawing for the 10X Genomics water bottle now ends on September 30th, 2021. And now on with our show. And Tony, I know you've also been working on something very relevant these days, which is COVID research. Can you tell us how you use 10X for COVID research? Yes, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. So you know, we're we're definitely an immuno-oncology focused lab, but um, I actually have, uh, my background is in uh, molecular virology. So uh, I was interested uh, when the opportunity presented itself at the University of Pittsburgh to, to try to apply, you know, both of those skill sets and, uh, and look at COVID. What we did was uh, used uh, in collaboration with the um, critical care uh, physicians at UPMC, we were able to look at a cohort of critically ill patients. And uh, our objective here was really to try to see if there were immune signatures that were related or predictive of outcome, uh, first in peripheral blood, but also within uh, really the site of infection in the lung. So we were able to use 10X technology on the peripheral blood samples, and uh, we were able to survey all the different uh, you know populations in peripheral blood. And use 10x data in conjunction with some machine learning algorithms to define uh, a signature that was predictive of uh, of mortality in patients with critical COVID-19, so those that are the sickest. Um, and that was really uh, an exciting step forward for us to, to really combine a bunch of different immune profiles in peripheral blood and have it translate into something that we think is clinically meaningful. Uh, we also used 10x technology on endotracheal aspirates uh, which is really essentially sputum from the lungs of intubated patients. And obviously, uh, there's some issues with processing that because it's uh, quite a thick and um, uh, difficult substance to work with, but it also contains uh, a lot of infectious virus. So we were able with 10X technology to, to sequence the very few cells that we were able to recover from those samples. And it was actually quite informative. We were able to identify specific populations of uh, macrophages that were actually infected with uh, COVID. So we're able to recover uh, viral transcripts uh, after sequencing from a, a subpopulation of cells. So 
Both in peripheral blood and within the lungs of patients with COVID, we were able to find some really exciting uh, new data. Really interesting stuff. I can't think of anything that's more cutting edge than COVID research that also utilizes machine learning. <laughs> so very cool. Um, I'd like to switch gears here just a little bit and ask Bob about how you support researchers that come to your core for running single cell assays. How does that process work? How do you get them started and how do you support them all the way through? Yeah, so to us, the, and Tony, I'm sure, would, would agree that the technology seems quite familiar, so it's easy for us to chart through experiments, but through to smaller investigators, particularly ones that don't have a sort of in-house bioinformatics experience or perhaps even in-house molecular experience, they, they can, it can be daunting and hard to, to understand. I will say that uh, up front that everybody that runs these things is uh, to, to the person is thrilled with the results. I mean, they, they uh, come in un unsure about whether it's because, you know, it's for, for many smaller labs, it, it does amount to a significant investment, if you will, but, uh, but everybody's happy. So we, we typically meet with people early on to have a good idea about what kind of experiments they want to run to understand better whether there's ways to do things more efficiently to give them an idea about how many cells they can run talk to them a bit about tissue digestion and and then to help them understand a little bit about what kind of results they can expect depending on you know what their goals are so we we try to address those issues all up front and, and typically we can do that fairly quickly they, they often will give us to be honest more detail than we need to about because everybody's always passionate obviously about their particular project which is fine so i learn a lot of different science and and then uh Typically, we'll, we will schedule it, or they'll schedule a time to run with my technical staff. Uh, we, we're uh, oftentimes doing things on human samples, and sometimes they come in late, late in the day, or uh, often, unfortunately for transplants, come in the middle of the night. So we uh, often will run after hours as well. So we, we talk to them a little bit about logistics, uh, tissue digestion. Try, you know, one of the more important parts of a successful project are getting the single cell suspension into a good condition so that we you know if, if once that's achieved the the rest is relatively straightforward and we occasionally will have failures but they're they're relatively rare actually and, and they're occasionally due to some uh, issues around whether the tissue digestion was adequate so uh, yeah t t typically things go very very easily and then we will uh, after the cdna library we, we go, go as far as preparing the cdna libraries and then we'll typically send those out to the, uh, most often now to the UPMC Genome Center to get them sequenced. And then the results come back and I'm fortunate to have uh, some, uh, uh, well, one, one person particularly who's outstanding technical staff, Tra Tracy uh, Tabib, who many people know at the institution, who will then align and uh, aid investigators with early steps in uh, doing things like Disney plots or, or feature plots or other Plus, we, we typically working through Serad is our kind of the workhorse software that we use. It's great that you provide such end-to-end -end support, even in the realm of bioinformatics. And I can definitely agree with you that sample preparation is going to be absolutely key. So even supporting people in that end of things is is really great. Um, can you just comment on which assays researchers at UPIT are using the most? Three prime, five prime, multiome. Uh, yes. Well, I think it, it depends on when they got started and 
what we do notice is that typically it's better, easier to stay with one platform if one is, you know, been running three prime. And if they aren't interested particularly in what's going on with the BCR or TCR, and they started in three prime, then typically they stay stay on three prime. We don't make a strong guidance that both both three prime and five prime seem to work quite well. We haven't compared them sort of head to head. I'll confess that, but they both seem to give us in our our settings similar kinds of results. If obviously if they're interested or think they might be interested eventually in looking at the TCR and BCR, then we then we'd uh, kind of push them more toward the five prime. But but we're using both multi-ohm. My own laboratory has been doing a fair bit of multi-ohm. It's still relatively early on, and there hasn't been a lot of engagement yet, although we're making people aware of it because the uh, the single nuclear RNA-seq associated with that does give somewhat different results than the single cell RNA-seq. The same cells are there, but they transcriptionally look a little bit different. So I think if people are interested in that, then it might make sense to do that early on. Um, yeah, but we haven't had we haven't had a tremendous engagement in that yet, I wouldn't say. Okay. Yeah, for multi-ohm, what I tend to see is that the transcriptional profiles of nuclei are rather disparate from the transcriptional profiles of whole cells, because we're excluding all those cytoplasmic transcripts. So what we tend to see, you know, you have the absence of those mitochondrial genes that people are interested in, but the overall profiles and relative abundances of the cellular subpopulations tend to be preserved. So that's always a discussion that I like to have with people who are looking to get started with our multi-ohm assay. And I did just want to provide a little bit of definition for people who might not be familiar with our three prime and our five prime assays. These basically functionally capture the opposite ends of transcripts. So the three prime assay, the poly A tail is going to physically hybridize to our gel bead oligos for cellular barcoding. And then we're going to be physically sequencing into the three prime end of those transcripts. Now for five prime, flip the molecule, we're grabbing the five prime end of the transcripts. And that is proximal to VDJ sequences, which allows us to look into those TCRs or BCRs more easily than with the three prime assay. So it is typically used more for immunology purposes. Um, oh, Tony, in the vein of researchers supporting each other, you mentioned previously that there was a single cell user group on campus that you were a part of. Can you tell us how that came about and how it benefited researchers? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that. And um, I'm sure Bob will have a bunch to say about that, too. He was really instrumental uh, in getting that set up initially. And, you know, it, it was funny the way it started. Um, at, the, at the beginning, it felt like it was uh, essentially uh, some people from uh, Dario Vignali's group and Bob Lafayette's group together, kind of just meeting to talk about how the data looks, you know, how we've prepared our samples, how we're doing analysis. And then as the weeks went by, there was more and more people uh, coming to this meeting as the technology really started to catch on. And I think eventually we we actually outgrew the room we started in. Uh, people were packing in and pulling in chairs from other places as the technology really took off. So you know, it was it was exciting to get uh, a group together like that and to to discuss, you know, how we were uh, going about doing things all the way from the wet lab through analysis as we were getting started. I think the really exciting thing, too, is that it brought together a bunch of different groups of people that don't interact all the time. So it, it brought together the people that were doing uh, wet lab work. It brought together the bioinformaticists. It also brought together both basic scientists and clinicians because everyone wanted to to learn how this technology was being used and what what we could use it for, uh, you know, for everyone's own specific research question. So it was it was an exciting thing, and um, I think it was really instrumental in 
in the uptake of uh, this technology at, at the University of Pittsburgh. And Bob, what were your experiences around this user group? Yeah, I think it was really valuable. And you know, we talked a little bit, Tony and I, recently about the value of perhaps even re restarting it because it kind of faded. We should mention the institution and the immunology department in particular has recruited a group of very skilled and knowledgeable bioinformatics and systems biology and systems immunology people. And we have meetings now with them although you know the interests are a little bit different and i think that there's still some value in having meetings focused more on the technology not just the technology but sort of the, what we call more the early stages in analysis of the data because some of the types of analyses are of course much more sophisticated and rely on bigger bigger data sets and some of the more advanced technologies such as the multiome uh, which actually is another topic i think as you know, as you know, 10x continues to come out with new products, and with each new product, there are new analytical opportunities as well as challenges, and and having discussions around those are are really useful as they were early on. So I think early on we were just trying to, you know, basically figure out how to cluster cells and how to combine samples for things that now we actually still wonder, you know, about combining samples is still something we we discussed at least in my lab meeting as recently as this morning. But um, yeah, so that, so that was tremendously valuable and, and allowed us to communicate and see what different, how different people were having different approaches. So Tony, Tony was working, we were, we were working closely together, but Tony was also doing a lot of his own an analytical things at that time. Still is, I'm sure, but we don't know as much about it because we haven't met for a couple of years, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I like how you can draw on everybody's diverse skill sets and really bring people together to inspire others how they might utilize these technologies and really push the boundaries about what we know about single cell biology. Um, I know that my alma mater for my PhD has a single cell user group, University of Oregon, and they find it really productive to talk about how other researchers are using these technologies and then they can collaborate and also draw on each other's skill sets for things like sample aggregation, normalization, how to assess batch effects and things like that. So absolutely. Um, great. Well, without giving anybody a scoop, Tony, would you feel comfortable sharing what kind of your next plans for single cell analysis technologies are? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, I think you know, we've touched on a few of them already, but some of the more emerging technologies are, are really, really interesting uh, for our group in particular. Um, you know, the the targeted single cell attack seek, uh, single cell attack seek for targeted applications is very going to be very helpful in immuno-oncology uh, in general. So looking at those chromatin states rather than just uh, expression profiles and also going to step beyond that and combining the RNA profiles with the uh, you know, chromatin accessibility in uh, within the tumor microenvironment is something that we're going to be really excited about. A third thing, given our uh, you know our really exciting data that came out of head and neck cancer regarding uh, B cells and tertiary lymphoid structures, uh, we're working really you know hoping to expand our uh, our research focus into the Visium platform to to try to better assess uh, the correlations between RNA transcriptional profiles and uh, really spatially defined structures such as tertiary lymphoid structures to understand one, how they form and uh, two, um, 
what they're doing within the, the tumor microenvironment. And uh, Dr. Tulia Bruno uh, is really invested in uh, in those those research approaches. So those are a couple of the things that uh, we have coming down the the pipeline. Great. And do you have any experience with cryosectioning, staining, and imaging that you're going to need to utilize for Visium? <laughs> yes, uh, we we in the lab have. Um, a lot of experience with, uh, you know, immunofluorescence and immunohistochemistry. Um, so we're we're learning to adapt uh, what we've got, um, you know, working in the lab uh, to the the new Visium technology. We're really excited about the the role of the FFPE Visium technology because it really allows us to access um, really a treasure trove of uh, of useful biological samples with uh, affiliated and associated clinical data, I should say. So, yeah, I think those are going to be really exciting exciting things, both in the the wet lab, and also uh, computationally. Have you heard of the highly multiplexed protein product that's coming out here soon? Uh, I've heard about it in passing, but it does sound uh, quite exciting and uh, quite applicable. It's going to allow essentially feature barcoding technology, which we utilize for single cell, where we label cells with barcoded antibodies, now applied onto Visium for spatial gene expression profiling and also basically being able to assess hundreds of protein targets simultaneously, not being limited by immunofluorescence and how many fluorescence channels you can actually capture in a single image, um, but being able to look at those proteins also in a very quantifiable manner in the context of our spatial gene expression technology. So super interesting there. We've been speaking with Tony Sillo and Bob Lafayettes, researchers at University of Pittsburgh, about how they adopted single cell and immune profiling technologies and support their research community to drive discovery in high resolution immunological research at University of Pittsburgh. Thank you, Bob and Tony, for your time and best of luck in your future research endeavors. Great. Thank you. You can find more episodes of Cell Intel Podcast at 10xgenomics.com forward slash cell dash intel. Subscribe if you want to be notified about new episodes, have the opportunity to give some feedback, or participate in polling questions or trivia contests for a chance to win a goodie and have your name, institution, and research area mentioned on the air. If you liked our podcast, your friends probably will too, so let them know about us. Thank you for listening and keep seeking out the possibilities. Mm -hmm.